0: Do you say the bogeyman or the boogeyman?
1: Boogeyman, as in boogies, boogers.
0: Yeah, I said bogey. Did your parents ever give you any stories to scare you when you were younger?
1: Yeah, we had a few. I can't remember whether he was supposed, I think he was supposed to be my uncle. My dad always told me that he had an evil brother, that I think he was like part wolf or something like that, like a werewolf creature that they had tried to get rid of. They put him in an asylum. And apparently he escaped and wanted vengeance upon the family and had been haunting or uh, had been attacking them ever since. And he said if we weren't good, Uncle Wolfface would whatever <laughs> you called him Wolfie. <laughs> would sneak in through the bedroom window and gobble us up.
0: Right, so he's gonna eat you. I assume so. Huh. Well we had some our parents told us about when we were younger growing up. In Yorkshire there was Jenny Greenteeth, and she was a, a green skinned hag who lived in the rivers and canals around where we lived If you got close enough to the bank, she would reach out with her spindly arms, drag you under the water, drown you, and then eat you.
1: Why are they always so bitter and angry? Why are they just trying to drag you into the water and kill you all the time? I don't know. No friendly monsters, but like ghosts, I suppose.
0: Lob is slightly friendly. He's a big ogre who appears at your door and will do housework for a saucer of milk in a spot by the fireplace. So he's not technically evil, but you still wouldn't really entertain that idea, would you?
1: So what happens if you don't feed him milk, he just eats you all.
0: He tries to persuade you to get drunk.
1: Unusual one. My nan, English nan, my mum's mum, she used to tell us if we were making too much noise in the back of the car that we'd be carried away by the travellers that were following us and would have to go and live with them.
0: Yes, my dad used to threaten me when I used to behave badly. He said he would sell me to the people who come round with pegs and I'd have to live with them. But he added a little twist to it as well, which was quite frightening. He said they would slice my head like it was a leg of ham and eat it in sandwiches.
1: <laughs> Sounds like he's just added that bit for his own amusement.
0: I think so, yeah. It worked. I mean, I even had a nightmare about it.
1: <laughs> Obviously, there's quite a lot of these ones, but this. Quite famous monsters like Loch Ness and the uh, Abominable Snowman and Bigfoot. I've got some more lesser known ones, probably more personal to me where I grew up in New Zealand and Australia. Have you got some that you could share that perhaps our listeners might not have heard of other than the big ones?
0: I do. Black Annis. She's quite similar to exactly what we've just been talking about. She was a witch who roams the countryside of Leicestershire. She had blue skin, iron nails, or iron talons, and she used those talons to grind out a cave for herself in some sandstone, and that's where she lives. And she comes out during the evening searching for children. The gruesome twist with her is that she loves to tan children or lambs by hanging them on trees and then wearing the skin around her waist as a belt. Lovely. I suppose that one is to try and stop kids going out after dark.
1: Yeah, I suppose if you thought you were going to be worn by a mad woman living in a cave. Was she a woman or some sort of like a... Sounds like she's kind of half-creature, half-woman.
0: She could transform into a cat. But again, I think that was one just to scare kids from going out at night time. I'm interested to hear about these ones in New Zealand. I lived there myself, as you know, Cal. But I didn't get down into some of the mythical creatures.
1: Well, you might have heard of this next one, but probably not by the name in the myth that it's known at. So we'll start with that. The myth is the Māori people used to tell the story of these giant demonic birds called pokai. And back in the day when they uh, came to New Zealand, they claim they used to attack them. Giant, humongous birds, massive talons, monstrous faces, and you know, some of them could be up to 230 kilos, or you know. Huge, big, giant birds, and they would fly down and just pick up small children, women, and even some of the men. Just pick them up in the air and sort of mock them and then just drop them down and watch them get killed and then just come down and have a feed upon the corpses.
0: This isn't the moa, the giant, kind of big ostrich flightless bird then?
1: Well, they used to kill them as well, apparently, which is how they, you know, first came about. These pokaias like to eat moa, and they like to eat maori as well.
0: Is there any chance that it was real and it went extinct, like the moa?
1: As you know, New Zealand was quite isolated for a long time and there were some extremely rare and unusual creatures there, like the moa and some lizards, Uh, so there is a chance that this one actually could be real. Have you ever heard of the Haast Eagle?
0: Now this I have heard of, on a David Attenborough documentary, I've actually driven through the Haast Pass before, and it's a beautiful place in the country. And I could well imagine something massive swooping around those alpine regions.
1: They were really, really big, and it kind of fits the timeline of this myth. They uh, went extinct around about 100 years after the Māori arrived, mainly because a lot of the moa was their food source, and the Māori were hunting and killing the moa. So they think that's why they went extinct, but they have found fossils and skeletons of these ginormous eagles. They were the biggest eagles ever found in the world. So big... You know, 38 feet wingspan you're talking about here, humongous talons, they think they could have actually lifted giant mowers and some of these are you know, half a ton. So they could have easily picked up a person and carried them off and they were also carnivores so they definitely could have eaten a person. Probably not often but once their food source started running out and they were getting a bit desperate and you've got to remember that there's no bears or any other sort of livestock that was there in New Zealand at the time other than mowers and smaller birds and a few lizards here and there. There was no cows or dogs or cats or anything for them to eat, so they probably would have had a crack at people.
0: Do you know when the last recorded sighting of a hast eagle was? Oh, it's
1: been about 750, 800 years, they reckon. It's been a while. So that's quite frightening. Can you imagine just wandering through the forest thinking, Jesus.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you've been lifted hundreds of feet into the air dragged over the side of a mountain. It would spoil your day tremendously.
1: Yeah, pretty much. It wouldn't be very nice. Yeah. You got any more then?
0: I've got a story of a monster, and this is very much um, from where my family originated from. Have you heard of the Lampton Worm? I
1: have, actually. I love this one.
0: Yeah. And the story takes place around the River Weir, and my surname is Weir Mouth, which is Mouth of the River Weir. John Lampton, who is heir of the Lampton Estate in County Durham, is out fishing one day. And he decided to skip church because he hadn't caught anything. As soon as church finished, he pulled out this little worm from the River Weir. It was about three feet long. It had nine holes in the side. Its head resembled a snake and it just looked like a little horrible creature. And at this point, an old man walked past and warned him that he'd caught the devil and he should be very careful about how he disposes of it. And John Lampton thought nothing of it. He threw it in the well and he walked off.
1: Oh, Lord. He was warned by a random old man that he'd picked up the devil. It was a strange looking thing with a snake's head and he thought, nothing of it, just going to chuck it in this well.
0: These myths and legends always have wise old men and wise old women.
1: Yeah, that's true. Alright, carry on.
0: For his penance as a young rebellious heir, he decides to join the Crusades and he goes off to the Middle East to fight. And this is where things take a turn for the worse. Eventually, the worm's grown into a large and poisonous, extremely dangerous creature, and it's crawled out of the well. Villagers around the area notice livestock go missing, children go missing, and then they find the worm coiled around a huge hill. And some of the stories say it was coiled three or four times; such was the size of it.
1: What's it been eating this whole time? How did it? Like, I understand it ate livestock and children before, but how did it get so big in the well to begin with?
0: Maybe it fed on water and the algae and the slime got itself strong enough to get out and then just carried on its rampage.
1: Yeah. Well, why is it so angry? I don't know. Just because it got tossed in the well, I suppose.
0: It terrorised nearby villages. It ate sheep, it stopped cows from producing milk, it snatched children, it carried on, and eventually it crawled its way to the Lampton Castle, which was where the Lord of the Manor lived, John Lampton's father. And Lampton's father eventually managed to appease the worm by giving it the milk of nine good cows, which is 20 gallons, every day in a stone trough. And it kept the worm relatively sedated.
1: Another one with milk, yeah?
0: Yeah, yeah. When the worm got annoyed, it'd coil its tail around a tree, uproot it, and just start smashing it around, bashing up villages, bashing up parts of the estate, <laughs> bashing up, uh, you know, smashing sheds.
1: I like when these things get bitter and angry. You can just picture this worm. It's like, where's my milk today? Oh, sorry, we've not got any milk.
0: Smash!
1: Just crashing through and destroying all the stuff.
0: Yeah, he's kind of like a nasty version of Groot, isn't he, of Guardians of the Galaxy? I mean, a few knights come to try and kill him. The worm quickly dispatched them. No pissing around. Touch me and you get this. Several years later, John Lampton returns from the Crusade, and he finds his father's estate pretty much destitute, because the worms just bled him dry for all the milk, smashed up everything there. He's ruling the roost, and the worm is now crawled into the River Weir and spends its day lounging around there until it decides to go and cause some more carnage. John visits a witch to see how he can actually kill the worm, and the witch tells him it's his fault that the worm exists. And she also says that if he attaches spearheads to his armour and fights the worm in the River Weir, that's how he can beat it. But there's one condition to killing the worm if he does it this way. He must kill the first living thing that he sees, or else his family will be cursed for nine generations and none of them will die in the beds. Which I'm not actually sure is a massive threat in those days, because people generally didn't die in beds back then.
1: Mm, it's quite a hefty consequence that she seems to know about. She seems to know a lot about this worm. Perhaps she's in league with the old man from the beginning. Anyway, so, so what did he do?
0: Previously, knights had chopped bits off the worm, and it had simply reattached them to itself and carried on killing them. But John attached all his spears, so he basically, his whole suit of armour looked like the guy out of Hellraiser. He went down to the river, he fought the worm, worms around him like a boa constrictor. John probably spun around like the Tasmanian devil, ripping it to pieces, and the worm got chopped into chunks and it all floated off in the stream before it got a chance to reattach itself. So John killed the worm.
1: Well done him. So what did he see next? He's got to kill something now.
0: This is where it all takes a little bit of a dark turn. John's father's so excited that the beast's dead that if he gets to release the hound when John blasts his hunting horn and he rushes out to congratulate his son, obviously John can't bear to kill his father, so they release the hound that's dutifully dispatched. But it's too late, and the Lamptons uh, suffer the curse.
1: So there's got to be some consequences for them slaying this dog then?
0: Yeah, it was a real family. If you go back in history, the next generation, Robert Lampton, drowned at Newrick. The second generation after him, uh, Colonel of Foot, was killed at Marston Moor. The third generation after him, William Lampton, died in battle at Wakefield. And the ninth generation, which was the last one, Henry Lampton, she said you were going to be cursed for nine generations. He died crossing Lampton Bridge in 1761. And then the curse ended.
1: Hmm. Well, it's uh, certainly suspicious. People do tend to die in battles and wars, but there could be something to it.
0: Yeah, I just love the idea of a worm being paid off by milk, smashing up local infrastructure.
1: <laughs> I just don't understand why milk, and then it's just so angry, it just smashes stuff up.
0: Yeah, and then it just lays in a river or coiling around a hill.
1: Chills about in the river. Yeah,
0: yeah. that is the Lampton worm. We used to have to sing songs about it at school. I'm not going to do that here. <laughs>
1: There were songs about it in school.
0: Yeah, yeah, we used to sing about the Lambton Worm.
1: You might be a relative of this lot if you're from around that area.
0: I <laughs> could well be. Do you have any odd ones from New Zealand? Because I do actually believe that the Hast Eagle exists, so that could explain the Pukai. What about anything else?
1: This one's a little bit more strange and unexplained. It's called the Tupua, and it was a shape-shifting demon that existed, and it caused all sorts of havoc for the Māori and even some early settlers to the country. Now, this demon can shapeshift into anything.
0: If it can shapeshift into anything, how do you know if it's really there or a demon at all?
1: You have to be very suspicious for a start, because it can change into literally anything. It's been known to shapeshift into things like rocks, carrots, potatoes... (laughs) A A
0: demon carrot?
1: Yeah. And because they are quite dangerous and they do require a sacrifice, if you don't offer a tribute to the demon when you spot it, it will kill you.
0: So this is how you ward it off.
1: It can be known to exist in two places at once. If you see it twice, you have to offer it two tributes or two sacrifices. So you can imagine you're going along, you see a mysterious carrot or rock... (laughs) And you think, oh, that's not just a carrot, that could be a tipper where you then have to walk up and give it food, or dead animal, I guess, or money.
0: Does it mean killing an animal for it?
1: Yeah, you might have to, yeah. Depending on, like, if it's spotted you.
0: <laughs> yeah, the carrot see me. I can't help but think that they've made this shape-shifting carrot-potato rock demon up. So when the new settlers arrive, they can leave, like, a carrot or a potato on the pan, leave them tributes. And then once the settlers have gone, the locals will jump out laughing and just take all the food for themselves.
1: I've not been able to find any records of anyone seeing it shapeshifted. It's it's not like you can see its true form at all. I don't even believe it's visible in its true form. So you can only see it shapeshifted. I'm not sure how you determine whether it's an actual tip or a demon, or if it's just a carrot.
0: What are the consequences of not paying off the shapeshifting demon? Just kill you in
1: that. How?
0: How does a carrot kill
1: you? I'm not an expert. Every time I saw a carrot growing up, I was wise enough to contribute. <laughs> tribute. I worked in a market garden, so you can imagine I cost <laughs> me most of my wages. I was just planting money everywhere. But yeah, I'm not sure. I think it just kills you. It just turns into its demonic form and gobbles you up.
0: I can see how that would be quite difficult, especially if you worked in a market.
1: Yeah, well, you think of all the yams and new potatoes and carrots that I worked around. I spent all day planting money, saving myself from these buggers. Especially once I read about the Harst Eagle existing. Who knows? Maybe this did.
0: You do never know. I think that it was, as I said before, a trick to con people out of stuff. In a more superstitious age, naturally.
1: Well, that's what I would do. I've actually got an even more amusing one, but I'll let you share one more before that.
0: I've put this one in for Kira Lennon, who's an author and a friend of the show. And this is The Hairy Hands of Dartmoor, because she's from Devon.
1: (laughs) The Hairy Hands of Dartmoor. All right, go on
0: then. Don't laugh, don't laugh. Be serious. I'll be serious. Picture this. You're driving down the narrow moor lanes in Dartmoor. There's dangerous countryside either side, especially when it's wet, it's dark. The roads aren't brilliant condition. Imagine the rain belting down. And all of a sudden, a huge pair of hairy hands grabs your steering wheel and rips it to one. <laughs> Calloused hands, you know, inhumanely strong, and they do the utmost to fight you off the road, spinning the wheel, and make you crash.
1: Yeah. Is this just an excuse for drunk drivers' DIY, as they would call it in America?
0: It's also, I think, to scare children into safe driving their bicycles as well, or even in sidecars. The tale relates to stories there with motorbikes crashing off the side, Side cars splitting, passengers on pillions, seemingly driven off the road by this huge pair of floating hairy hands.
1: <laughs> well what's the origin of this then? Because if it mainly attacks motorists and people on bikes, did it used to attack people riding on horses back in the old days, or where did it come about? In
0: nineteen twenty four, a couple were out camping in a caravan in the area, and the woman was woke in the middle of the night by some hairy hands trying to grow up. <laughs> I mean, that's never happened before. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's where it came about. So these just... Well, whose hands are they? They must be someone's hands.
0: There's a couple of theories. One is that it's complete bollocks, which could be true. <laughs> but the other one is that it's an evil entity in ghostly form of an ex-Dartmoor prison inmate who was a murderer. These dark, hairy hands have emanated from there.
1: Yeah, that makes sense, I suppose.
0: What do you, what do you think <laughs> of the hairy hands of Dartmoor? Yay or nay?
1: In my expert opinion, I think it's just an excuse for bad driving, but I guess I'll have to make a trip over. I've driven in some shocking roads around England, especially old Roman roads that have way more traffic on them than they probably should, so you never know, but I'm not overly convinced by this one at all.
0: That's fair enough. On from Hairy Hands, do you have anything on the silly side?
1: Yeah, so we're uh, shifting across the Tasman Sea from New Zealand to Australia now, You've lived in Australia, I live here now. There's actually quite a serious problem with the wildlife here, and most people would be aware of that. The uh, crocodiles up north, snakes, spiders, sharks. Westies. Yeah, Westies. It's actually (laughs) uh, an extremely dangerous creature that tops all of them. so fearsome that you have to basically be on your guard at all times. You may have heard of it. It's a relation to the supposed friendly koala bear, and it's called the drop bear.
0: This one must pass me by. Where do they live in Australia?
1: Like their koala cousins, the drop bears live in gum trees, but they're much bigger and much more dangerous. So unlike koalas that are herbivores, drop bears are actually vicious carnivore marsupials, and they like to attack unsuspecting people, specifically tourists, because... They're actually drawn to foreign accents instead of Australian accent. An unusual thing for a predator, I guess, to be attracted to specific type of speech patterns, I guess.
0: I don't know. In Glasgow, they're very attracted to different accents, you know, when they hear them in the pubs. They generally get attacked outside, wallets taken. (laughs) (laughs) It's a predator's. But this is
1: actually very serious, and you must take it seriously. The Australian Museum, on their webpage, notes the drop beer, or... Is
0: there any repellents to stop these things attacking? I assume that they've got big long claws like the koalas and they scrag you to death. How do you stop them?
1: There's a few major ways to repel these. Obviously, I noted that they don't tend to attack people with Australian accents. So, if you're American or British or whatever, you could just put on your best steve Irwin and say, Hello! How is everybody? and you probably won't get attacked. Blimey! Yeah, go blimey mate! If you can't do a good Steve Irwin impression, there are some other ways of escaping. They're extremely allergic to Vegemite, you may have heard of that. Similar to your Marmite or Americans may have heard of the dreaded Vegemite. It's a yeast extract spread that you usually put on your toast. Yes, yeah. Has a very strong odour and taste. If you actually rub that all over the back of your ears, they won't come near you.
0: <laughs> okay, so do tourists actually do this when they go into the outback or near gum trees?
1: Yeah, well, it's just even in the, in the streets, they actually, um, unlike koalas that are petrified of people, drop bears actually just live in parks and even in the major cities, just trees. You've got to be very careful. Obviously, Vegemite it has a very pungent odour and it's very strong. If you don't have any Vegemite or you don't like the smell of it, you can actually just smother your face in toothpaste, because they also don't like that. <laughs> just like a face mask. Toothpaste.
0: <laughs> I'm starting to smell a bit of a rat with this one. I would have heard of these if I was over there.
1: You may have spotted the third cautionary tactic, and this one's obviously very smart. They're called drop bears, and they drop from above. So if you actually fasten a vertical screwdriver, preferably phillips to the top of your head or stick it through your hat and just walk around with it if they do happen to drop they'll impale themselves on the screwdriver
0: (laughs) so okay let's get this straight if you want to be completely bulletproof you'll have vegemite which is like marmite or bovril smeared behind your ears you'll be whited up you'll be whited up with a white face mask toothpaste like colgate splattered all over your face And a screwdriver sticking out at the top of your head, making you look like some kind of weird alien. (laughs) Next time I go down under, I'm going to have to make sure I dress like that, because this sounds like a serious problem.
1: It is a serious problem, and we tell all visitors to Australia to beware of the drop bear.
0: Who falls for this? Anyone?
1: No, it's total bollocks.
0: I suspected so.
1: But yeah, it's quite a common and amusing one. You tell people. Legitimately on the Australian Museum website. Australian Geographic is even on April Fool's Day back in 2013 did a big story on them, and there's been published papers on them in the Australian Geographic and all sorts of stuff that have tried to drag this joke along. My mother in law actually, the first time she came over to visit us when we hadn't been here that long, we told her about them and we all sort of had a big joke about it. But every time we did go out for a walk, out of the corner of my eye, we'd see her. Just raising her head slightly and looking up into the trees. I wonder if she had a screwdriver. <laughs>